that John relates the stories about, <clears throat> witnesses to Jesus specifically, witnesses to the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And it's interesting how John himself, in his gospel, is one of the few who makes it very clear as to why he wrote the gospel. It's one of those peek ahead, look to the end of the story. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 31. You don't have to turn there, but he says very clearly, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right there, spells it out for us. Here's why he relates these stories, and we're examining some of them one at a time to find out about the witnesses. Imagine, if you would, that you're on trial. And the verdict depends upon the reliability of the witnesses who will be standing there. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to serve on a jury. It was a civil case, and one of the witnesses they called was actually the plaintiff. And as he sat in the witness box and related the, the, um, the accident, the car accident, he explained as we at the jury were listening how as a result of the collision, he injured his, his right elbow. Uh, he was the driver and how it smashed up against the window. And we the jury are sitting there listening, wait a minute, if you're driving, wouldn't that be the left elbow? Yeah, needless to say, the verdict was more in favor, not of the plaintiff, but of the defendant. Wouldn't it be good, if you and I are the ones on trial, that we have a witness, someone who is believable, perhaps articulate, someone who's confident, someone who's well-respected, in fact, what I just, just described is someone who Pastor Ralph was talking about last week, Nicodemus, the ruler. Well, today, we're going to look at a different kind of witness, an unlikely witness. I think you listen closely, you'll hear some contrasts to what I just described. And on top of that, be prepared for a surprise ending as to how this applies to us. Turn to John chapter 4, if you would. It's quite a lengthy narrative, and we're going to cover as much as, of it as we're able in the time we have together. So if you have John chapter 4 open, uh, we can move through those verses. The whole chapter contains some very clear and powerful statements from Jesus regarding his deity and his mission. You could, spend, you could camp on each one of those and spend a whole message on each one. We won't do that today. Um, but he's preparing to present himself as the ultimate witness of salvation. And throughout the gospel, John records accounts of those who, in turn, become witnesses of Jesus himself by their words and by their transformed lives. Now, if you look at the gospels, the four gospels in brief, Matthew is very good at, at relating information and telling stories, especially for the Jewish context. Mark, when he writes his gospel, is more concise, compacted. Luke, the physician, is very precise in how he relates 
the uh, activities of Jesus and so forth, John is different. John likes conversations. He likes to be able to tell how it unfolded and the motives behind it. I mean, you think of it, the John's, John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, that's all one conversation. That's Jesus relating at the, at the, uh, end, towards the end of his life, uh, his prayer and so forth. But that's John. John chapter 4 uh, begins early in the place of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we can see these already contending with the Jewish leaders. Okay, there was some concern there. They didn't like the people following him rather than following their own strict, self-serving, empty traditions. So he headed north to Galilee. And on the way to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. See, Jerusalem was south. In order to get north up to Galilee, he had to go through a country called, a part of the country called Samaria. Now, it says he had to go. Now, some of the Jews at that time chose not to. They would go around Samaria. We'll get to why in a moment. But Jesus had to, and it was because of a divine appointment. The country, the area of Samaria uh, was a region that the king of Assyria had invaded hundreds of years previously, and in so doing, he had taken Jews from that area, had repopulated with Chaldeans and others, so that it was considered a, what would be called a mixed-race peoples, plus a mixed-religion peoples. Uh, this Samaritans did their own thing religiously. And this is somewhat of a syncretistic um, outlook, uh, way of looking at what they thought was the Pentateuch and their version of it. This infuriated the Jews in Jerusalem. They looked, actually looked down on them. The two groups did not get along together at all. Verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now here's John, it is precise about where this is. He wants to let his reader know where Jesus was. Genesis chapter 33 is the record of this purchased by Jacob. And Joshua chapter 24 records that Joseph was buried there. In that area. Verse 6 Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. We get the idea that Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem probably early in the morning. By the time they arrived at Sychar, it was probably noon. That's the sixth hour. And it was one of those, ah, it's a rest stop. Yes. You've been walking for that long. You're thirsty. You don't have bottled water. You're looking for a well. And there's Jacob's well at Sychar. Uh, disciples were hungry. We know this from verse 8. So they went in town to the 7-Eleven to find something to eat. And as Jesus is sitting there, a woman approaches. Jesus knows that this is a divine appointment. A woman does not yet. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. See, she's going to the, to the well at noon, which is not the typical time you would go to get water. It would usually be early in the morning or late in the evening. We can, we can kind of guess as to why, because probably no one was, would be there. That was her guess. So as she comes over the hill and looks down towards the well, she has her water pot on her shoulder, and she's looking, and there's somebody sitting there. This is why I came now, okay, so that there'd be nobody there. So it continues on. You've got to get water. This is a daily thing. Uh, gets closer. It's a man. Great. Okay, got to keep going. I, I need to fill this water with the water. They're go- that's drinking water, washing water, everything else water. She gets closer and she can see that it's a Jewish man. 
We know this again from a later verse. She surmised that he was a Jew. Now, that's one of those things where we know we can, we live in a multicultural city. We know that. We can, we can see when somebody else is from another culture. You can even, even downtown, you can tell, uh, you can tell the tourists from the, the people who are normally there. It doesn't say tourist across the forehead, but they're the ones walking and looking up in the, the buildings like that. So, so there's no, you know, it's one of those things we can just tell. Well, she could just tell this was a Jewish man. Awkward. On top of all this, he speaks to her. Doubly awkward. Oh, my goodness. Look in verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. He was thirsty. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She points out the obvious. Jesus is breaking a cultural norm. You know, a cultural norm is something that is so familiar in a culture you don't even realize you're doing it. You don't realize you break it until it's something completely different. In fact, there are classes, um, college classes, intercultural studies, where, where the assignment is for the students to go out and actually break a cultural norm. Like, like sit on the CTA bus and clip your fingernails or something like Something that just, you just don't do that here. It's a cultural norm. Or on the other hand, you'll notice it when you're in another country, perhaps, and they'll have a cultural norm that you're not accustomed to. Last month when we were in the Philippines and I, I was able to um, see some of the friends that I had encountered there in the past, it's always good to see them again. And, and not once, but twice, they, someone said to me, Oh, Nathan, you are so fat. I, I know I didn't realize, you know, show that much, but, but that in that country, that's a compliment. It's like we would say, oh, it's good to see you. You're looking good. Just as easy as that. But in the Philippines, it's a little different. Well, this wasn't just a cultural norm, okay? This was a significant step outside of what was culturally acceptable for Jesus actually to speak, initiate, and speak to this woman. We don't know the tone of her voice, but there must have been surprise and this was a loaded question. Will you give me a drink? See, probably she had been treated poorly in the past, and maybe she even felt inferior. So she just had to ask, why? How? You're asking me. John puts the parenthesis in there, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Basically, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. But if Jesus initiates the conversation anyway, he risks a negative response, if discovered talking to this woman, he would have been discredited, discredited by the so-called religious people. Plus, he was tired. And we're tired and thirsty. We don't necessarily want to initiate a conversation. Just, just help me out here. But all three reasons. He, he still did. He initiated the conversation. Anyway, see, God had set up this divine appointment. Jesus obeyed. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It's a statement meant to invoke more conversation. It's his desire. It's his purpose. See, Jesus is so in tune with his Father's will that a simple request for a cup of water turns into a spiritual discussion. It's not contrived. Uh, it's not a plan. It's not part of the evangelism program. It's just something that's natural. Jesus is simply available. And apart from his carefully orchestrated times of rest, he was always available to his father for something like this. 
conversation wasn't canned. It wasn't reciting the same memorized passages or response. So Jesus starts the spiritual conversation, but if you glance down through the verses, you're going to realize she doesn't realize it's a spiritual conversation until all the way down in verse 18. But here's where he started it. He intrigues her with three unknowns. What he has, a gift, and who he is, and how she can have it too. So the woman answers him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The woman points out the obvious. She looks at Jesus and says, "Um, You don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. The well is about 100 feet deep. How are you going to get water? Now she's curious. It worked. The rhetorical question is kind of phrased in a way that you don't. In other words, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? Of course not. Samaritans consider themselves descendants of Jacob, and little did she know he was far, far greater than her father Jacob. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the beginning of the water motif that we see throughout John and throughout other books as well. He doesn't directly address her Our Father Jacob statement. That would draw him into a political religious discussion. But this water, he says, in this well, you'll thirst again. The water that I have, you'll never thirst again. The woman uses a a, a word for water that's more like water from a pit. Different word. Jesus uses a completely different word, more of like a, a bubbling fountain. Now, today we don't understand, fully appreciate the necessity of the availability of water. At that time, it was life or death. So this woman got a picture of, if he's talking about water, that must be significant. How can I get this water that's always available to me? See, Jesus is speaking figuratively of giving his water as life to a spiritual soul that's thirsty. Instead of slurping stagnant, slime-covered, muddy water from a puddle, he offers something that is far, far different. See, you and I, we, we live in a world where things happen that ought not to. We know that. We've seen that just this past week. And Jesus is speaking to something like this. It may not seem like it on the surface, just like it didn't to the woman. She's thinking practically. I want a drink of water. He's thinking spiritually. We do the same thing. We want something here and now to fix whatever it is that's broken. Contrast this. See, instead of seeking fulfillment in human relationships that inevitably let us down, we need to seek God's presence. Instead of seeking the water of satisfaction by surrounding ourselves with comfort items that somehow we have convinced ourselves that we need, we should seek contentment that can only come from resting in the riches of God's grace. That's the living water. 
Instead of an all-consuming search for relief from the relentless pain in our lives, the pain of broken relationships, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the mental pain, seeking God's water means we actually acknowledge that pain as a gift from God that leads us back to his fountain. And instead of an anxiety-filled life, always overly concerned about and allowing ourselves to be consumed with personal safety, job security, good things, fulfilled dreams, we find that steadily, consistently drinking from this clear, cool fountain of our relationship with God results in a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of the chaos that is our lives. That's the living water that we need. That's the living water that the woman needs. She didn't realize it yet. So do we. We have to come to a place ourselves of realizing that living water. Jesus offers deeply satisfying, clear, cool water that is unlimited in its quantity and unmatched in its quality. We need that water. This is the spiritual lesson the woman did not yet grasp. But she's drawn into the conversation even more. The woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In other words, natural response, I want some, sign me up. You and I would have said the same thing. She's thinking in human terms. In fact, if you notice, if you remember last week, Pastor Ralph was talking, Nicodemus had the same response when he asked about going back into my mother's womb, how can I be born again? We think practically, naturally. So is this woman. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Jesus continues the conversation, but again, he doesn't directly address the statement she just made. See, he's in the process of showing her this water, but he needs first to convince her that this conversation has to do with spiritual things and not practical here and now things. This immediately puts her in a crisis, in a bind. Okay, she, again, she just came to get water, okay? This is what I do every day. I got the jar on my shoulder. I'm walking down. I just, I just wanted water. And now this Jewish man is in a conversation with me and he tells me to go get my husband. Awkward. Because the woman said to him, verse 17, I have no husband. Now this, in the Greek, this is a very, very short, it's the shortest statement in there. It's kind of like saying, single. Kind of like that. Just saying, no husband. Why did he ask that? Of all things. See, Jesus is about to reveal <clears throat> secrets and sin here. We don't like that. So we can kind of acknowledge, we, we, can, we know what this woman is feeling like. See, we, we, we're like, get away from me, don't judge me. Because Jesus says to her, this is again in verse 17, you're right in saying you have no, no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. If you're the woman sitting at the well, this is the moment at which you say, <gasps> pause, how did he know that? Right? Awkward. Again, beyond awkward. She catches her breath. She stares at him with her mouth open. 
What started out to be a simple routine trip to get water has turned into everything she did not want it to be. If he knows this about me, what else does he know? Jesus affirms the woman's statement and then speaks with the omniscience of God. We don't know the circumstances, but five divorces and living now in adultery, it was completely unacceptable under Jewish law and Samaritan as well. The woman said to him after that pause, and she closed her mouth, she says, Oh, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Good, good point. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, why she did this, we're not exactly sure, but she all of a sudden inserts into the conversation this Jewish-Samaritan dispute over where to worship. Uh, The Jews said, worship must be in Jerusalem. That's what the law said. The Samaritans had taken that and kind of supplemented it and, and added to it so that they could also worship on Mount Gerizim, which is right next to where the well was, and wouldn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, this was kind of like, this is what we call syncretism. Um, syncretism happens without, usually without the worshipers even realizing. You can tell a worshiper point blank that they've polluted their pure worship with non-essentials, but because they've become so used to it as the norm, they'll sometimes even vehemently defend their practice. Okay, that's, that's syncretism. Plus, the reason why the worshipers have neglected a focused commitment to God's word and have sought to supplement it in some way, saying, you know, this is good, but we need to improve on it. That's what syncretism is. And the reason I bring it up is because, I mean, we, we think, oh, we're, we're um, immune to that. Oh, no, we're not. It, it can seep into any culture as it did into the Samaritan culture. So Jesus says a very clear statement Salvation is from the Jews. That means the Messiah is coming through the Jewish people. He's not saying Jews had perfected true worship. He's saying salvation comes through the Jews. In verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's saying something about the time is coming. If you look back in verse 21, he said the same phrase. The hour is coming and now is. It's introducing a new way of doing things. Some theologians would call this a new dispensation. But this is something brand new for the woman. I mean, what is this? this is, I haven't heard this before. Um, and, and rightly so. Because here we are, worshiping in spirit and truth. What does that mean? It's both and, in fact. God's essential nature is not changing from pre-incarnation time to post-resurrection time. His nature is not changing. But his chosen way of allowing his people to relate to him is changing. So the time is coming when they can worship in spirit and truth. Spirit is God's essential nature. Truth is what is in harmony with the will of God. Without spirit, worshiping without spirit, it's empty ritual. Worshiping without truth, it's aimless wandering. And notice one little word in there, seeking. God actively seeks these worshipers. Remember Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. God is seeking. It's not just, he didn't put on the internet as a job opening available. Hey, you can, if you're looking, here's, here's what you can find. No, no, he's actively seeking us. 
It would appear to some of us as though the woman found Jesus. That's not the case. Jesus found her. Commentator Merrill Tenney paraphrases this verse by writing this. If you really, Jesus speaking, if you really want to know the truth about worship, you will find it not in the formula of your fathers, but in the relation of your own heart with God. You must deal with him through his spirit and on the basis of truth, which precludes the kind of a life that you're living now. Verse 25, the woman responds. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. See, the Samaritans hoped for a Messiah. They got this through the Pentateuch. Um, Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, they left out the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on. So they only had used the Pentateuch, but they still believed in a Messiah. So uh, Moses says, yes, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, when she threw this in there, when this woman made this statement, was it perhaps an attempt to evade Jesus' probing of her personal life? We don't know her motive, but it seems that way. But in the midst of this self-made mess, the woman spoke of hope, the Messiah. She didn't understand it fully. But she knew that there would be a revealer, a Messiah. She was so close to understanding who Jesus was. And this next statement is the most important in the whole narrative. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's at this point that Jesus reveals himself to her. The woman at the Samaritan woman at the well, not to Nicodemus, not even to his family, not to the disciples, not to the crowds, the curiosity seekers that were following him, not to the Jewish leaders, but to the woman sitting there. He revealed himself. He uses the same phrase that God uses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read that to you. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. The same phrase that Jesus uses in verse 26 there. And he says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus didn't reveal himself in this way in other contexts. Not to Nicodemus, certainly not to the Jews and the Samaritans and the Jewish leaders who would take it as a political statement. He revealed himself, this truth, at this time, in this place, to this person, because her heart had been prepared, and she was the one who needed it the most. And it was this point, apparently, she believed. Verse 27, the disciples came back, made the run to 7-Eleven, got back with the food. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman, again, she had come to get water. She left her water jar sitting there, ran into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him immediately. She didn't even bother to fill up her, her water and take it into town. She went into town and told the people. 
verses 31 through 38, another strong statement from Jesus about his mission, the harvest. His disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Again, this is a spiritual discussion, right? We have a hard time with that because we think just as practically as the woman and as the disciples. This is a spiritual discussion. The water that he's talking about, the food that he's talking about. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. It could be, we don't know this, he could have been pointing at all the people coming to him to the well from Sychar. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This is a wonderful picture of how God brings people to himself and uses people like us to do that. And so many times our eyes, my eyes, are not open to the spiritual harvest that's standing right in front of me. Isn't that true? But God has it out there. He's ready. He's waiting. He has it ready for us to harvest. Or in some cases, we're supposed to be the ones just simply sowing the seed. I know that's hard for us sometimes. Um, we, We like to do the harvesting, right? We like it when people come to a place and they acknowledge Christ as their Savior and we're able to lead them in a prayer or whatever and they come to faith in Christ. That's the harvest. But sometimes, for those of you who are the believers, the job is simply to sow that seed. Somebody else is going to come along and do the harvest. That's okay. Our job is simply to be faithful in sowing that seed. Well, the result? Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. He stayed there another two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The only time this phrase is used in the book of John. The Savior of the world. Not just of the Jews, not just of the Samaritans, but of the world. And this is what they believed. This was the most unlikely witness. I think often, at least I have when I've reflected on this passage, this passage I see principles that relate to witnessing to unbelievers. You can observe how Jesus related to this woman and was intentional, and rightly so. There's so many applications that can help us significantly by following Jesus' pattern of personal evangelism. That's helpful. But I think in reality it's much different. The application is personal in a different way. In fact... Rather than fancying ourselves as the Jesus-type soul winner, aren't we more like the unlikely witness? Here's a person who believed a culturally acceptable version of God's truth. 
who would rather debate the finer points of doctrine than discuss her personal life, who had not five but six relationships she attempted to hide and was slow in understanding and accepting that Jesus is the Messiah. We are the Samaritan woman. You say, wait a minute. I haven't had five husbands. Some of you are thinking, one's quite enough, thank you. No, but don't we have more secrets than this woman that we are resistant to Jesus addressing? And in spite of this, he still seeks us. How might we be like the Samaritan woman? I see at least four ways. One, some might have never come to a place where they fully understood or accepted that Jesus is not just a Messiah, he is the Messiah and he's my Messiah. That is the most important step. We have to come to that place. See, there's some, you notice in the text, Jesus didn't say to the woman, okay, you can come to me, I'll give you some water, but first you've got to go back, you've got to clean up your life because it's a mess. See, Jesus could say that to each one of us too. And quite frankly, guess what? You can't. As hard as you try, you can try to be good, and maybe the good will outweigh the bad so that in the end it'll be all right, and you know I'm not going to worry about it till then. No, 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 no. Jesus says you can't. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Every one of us. So instead of trying to do the good things and being good and get my life cleaned up so I can go back to church and Jesus will like me, no, God will see us through Christ. Coming to the point where we realize that Jesus is ours, my Messiah. And coming to a point and saying, you know what, I can't do it. I tried to be good. It doesn't work. You're right. Placing the faith and the trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. That's the first and most important step. Because he is the only one who's ever been perfect. He's the only one that is sinless before God, and it's in him that we place our trust. Before this, the Jews made sacrifices daily. They had all kinds. They had a list of over 600 laws that they had to keep, and and that kept them in a right relationship with God. But then Jesus came and said, I'm the sacrifice. I'll take the sin of the world on me. And for us to hear this today, we should not take that for granted. That is huge, because there's a lot of sin that he took on. Ours included. And we can come to that place where we say, okay, I surrender, I I come to faith in Christ, I realize all of this effort on my part is not getting me anywhere. I'll accept him. That's the first. A second way we might be like the Samaritan woman is (laughs) evade, like she did. Resist, hide, deny. Don't get up in my business, right? Yeah. This is rebellion. And the unfortunate thing, it's often invisible to the person who's doing it. That's hard. That that means me or that means you. And you know what? Coming to this point, I believe prayer is probably the most significant thing that we can do. And I pray in two ways. Number one, God, if I know somebody like this, please, as you approach this person as this person realizes that you're there loving them open their eyes thaw their heart clear their mind of all the other stuff that they come to you in repentance that's a prayer and the part two of that prayer which really should be part one is search me oh god so that i don't i have a hard heart because often that happens we don't even realize it 
So that's both. That's, that's one, the, the, the evading and the resisting and the denying. A third way, some people might look at this and say, you know, the five husband thing, that's just the tip of the iceberg for me. There's a lot of junk. There's a lot of stuff going on in my life. There's no way that God can possibly use me as his witness with all my junk. God is the great healer. He turns that junk into his treasure. And by his grace, we can be that unlikely witness. The injustices we have faced, the sinful acts, the sinful attitudes, the sinful patterns, in his grace, he heals, he turns our witness from simply being survivors to being thrivers. Where we're living for him and we're being that active witness and we're serving him. And this comes to the fourth, fourth category where we say surrender. Okay, I get it. I repent. This is the point at which we experience God's grace. We are so much like that unlikely witness. The focus comes off of us. It comes, uh, all of our junk, all of our pain, all of the stuff, all of the five husbands plus that we hide. It becomes a testimony of God's grace. If he can save us out of this, he can save anybody. Amen? How are you like the Samaritan woman? Do you need that divine appointment? He has it there. He's waiting. Find that well. Find the well, wherever it might be. Unexpected. It might be in your daily walk. You might be going about your daily business, just like this woman was. There's a divine appointment waiting. And for many of us, <laughs> there are many divine appointments waiting. We need that. He's there, and what he has for us there is that living water. So stop with the slurping out of the muddy, pud- uh, muddy puddle. Take a drink of that cool water that he has for us. You ask, how can I, this is nice, this is all nice. Tomorrow, today perhaps, I've got to go home and I've got to face junk, pain. Tomorrow I've got to go to work. What does this have to do with that? The water is always there. We go running off to the puddle. I don't get enough, I've got to get some more in my bottle, I've got to get some more. No, 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 the water is there in a relationship with God. It goes deep and we need it. We have such little, every once in a while we get a little taste, a little trickle. That's what God wants us to have, so that we'll thirst for more. We need that. That's what needs to take place in our lives. As the band comes and we singing a song of invitation, all who are thirsty. This is an invitation, whether you're there in your seat, whether you want to come and talk to a prayer counselor, it's an invitation. All who are thirsty, come to him. He has the living water. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, thank you so much for reminding us, for showing us and then reminding us, Lord, of what the living water is. We need it. We are thirsty souls. We need the water that you have for us. God, I pray for each one here that we may realize, first of all, realize that, Lord, the muddy water that we're slurping is not satisfying. We need the water from you. And then teach us. Teach us daily how to drink deeply from our relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The prayer counselors will come at this time as we lead in our final.